that was anathema, right? Because, uh, but uh, Ryan found this wonderful resuscitation. Is that right? The right word. Resuscitation. Re resuscitations you do when someone passes out in your Bible study. <laughs> Grady, be ready. It started this way. I thought I'd just share it because it's just I just love the way sometimes things just kind of. It says God has always had a people. Many a foolish conqueror has made the mistake of thinking that because he had forced the church of Jesus Christ out of sight, he had stilled its voice and snuffed out its life. But God has always had a people. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Father, Lord, and thy blessed Holy Spirit, how worthy of praise you are, and how thankful we are to be able to come together and open up your word and learn from you through your word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both upon and within. And we just take this time to settle our hearts and our minds and settle into this time that we have to give you praise and give you honor and to acknowledge you for all that you are which will always bring the church to a blessed and hearty thank you. And Lord, we lift these things up because of what you have done on our behalf. And we lift them up in your name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You want your phone back? So I, I wanted to um, I wanted to just kind of go back to our study last week and and try to help if any of you might feel like we drifted away from our Romans one section because I kind of I kind of tried to walk us through the the this reality that when you were saved if you have been saved if you have been brought to new life by the blessed work of the triune God, you were snatched right off of this downward slide that most people will look at and say, that is reserved for some violent tribe in the jungle. That is not, or inner city, that is not me, right? And the point I wanted to make last week and continuing this week is that when we were snatched, we were snatched right out of a life loaded with sin. They were still very much a part of our life and our surroundings and the people that we lived with and ran with. And it was all right here. And we were snatched out of that and into the church for the purpose of sanctification. And the point that I wanted to make, and I still want to make this morning, is how essential that the church be the church. But we must understand what the church has to be. That we can be really fulfilling this wonderful commission, right? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. leading us into the Word of God, showing us our sin to be put off and showing us the righteousness of Christ to put on and having this blessed body of believers that we trust and we love to come alongside of us and help us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are not saved to an island. Thanks be to God, right? 
And we kind of wound down with two passages that I want to just kind of snap us back into. And it, if those of you that have your study from last week, um, you'll, you'll recognize them. But it's this blessed, and I would call it the grand indicative, which is these indicatives of the Bible tell us what God has done. And just look how plain it is written in Paul's language here. Romans 8, verse 30 says, and I want to emphasize, and I want you to pay attention, because this is how you find these indicatives in the Bible. Who's doing the action? Look at this passage, and boy, talk about the grand indicative, what God has done. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the point? And I always go back to that same passage in Revelation when we just take those blessed gifts of crown that flowed right out of Ephesians 2.10, the works that had been prepared before us, and we throw them right back to him because he did it all. And it's interesting in this passage how we see in one sentence how God has finish the end from the very beginning because we end up glorified far from where we are right now right because we are being sanctified but as far as God is concerned because he is the one who deposited a genuine saving faith inside of you you are as good as glorified in heaven right now isn't that a wonderful wonderful truth as you're battling through sin in a world that is just absolutely hostile to God and growing in that hostility. And so we have this passage from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also, and here comes the put off, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Can you not see that the writer of Hebrews understood the issue of putting off as well? And here comes, let us run within the, with endurance the race that is set before us. And here comes the put on. What a glorious robe to put on looking to Jesus as the founder and what? Perfecter of our faith. Isn't that wonderful? And again, who's doing it? He is. But he's doing it through you, through the blessed Holy Spirit. And I always, I'll never forget when it hit me that the very Spirit of God that is in me is the very same Spirit of God who raised Jesus' dead body from that slab of rock. That same Spirit who was also the inspiration between the entirety of our Scriptures and all of the circumstances that were captured in those Scriptures. That Spirit of God is in you for one preeminent purpose, to glorify Christ. Man, is that not just, we could just stop there and just let Ryan and the group just usher us into some singing, right? It's so glorious. And we kind of launched off of Paul's passage in Philippians 3.12 and 16. Not that I have already obtained this. And here comes Romans 5, 6, and 7. Not that I have already attained this or I am already perfect. And I kid you not, there's a blog of an African-American Christian man who has a very wide following who literally started a series three weeks ago that says what? I'm saved. I literally do not and cannot sin. 
And he has a massive following. How can you possibly get through this morning, Ryan, and think that to be true? Love you, brother. <laughs> I'm just saying. Right? Paul wasn't this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He's always reaching to be conformed to his Lord. And I don't think all of us got knocked off our high horse. I know none of us did like he did. But I know I got knocked off my high horse. And I thank God every moment for that. Because that man was who I was saved out of. And it is that man that Paul talks about all the way through 5, 6, and 7. And can you imagine what Paul had to run through his mind? You ever wonder if he was in the background of all those encounters with Christ and the Pharisees? Because he was in the director's chair when Stephen was stoned to death. Thankfully, God didn't let me go that far. But I sure did it with my mouth. And I love this. I press on to make it my own because, listen to the, just the preciousness of this. Christ Jesus had made me his own. He took possession of us. When he snatched us, he said, you are mine now. And the Bible uses the word what? Slaves, doulos. You're my slaves now. You're no longer slaves of sin. <laughs> Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. And there's what we launched off of. If God, of God, in Christ Jesus, let those of us who are mature think this way. And let's just add, so that we can come alongside the weaker brother or the weaker sister. And we can disciple the way God has equipped us to disciple the church. So that she may have the testimony that's worthy of her namesake. That's what Paul had in his heart. Why else would he do what he did? Right? If you ever stood on the shore of Antalya, Turkey, and you could see the, the landscape that Paul traversed, broken and beaten and whipped, you would be like, wow. It's amazing. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will review that to you also. Because you have the teacher in you, right? Only let us hold true to what we have attained, and that is Christ. So the entire exhortation is that the church be knitted together. And I wanted to just kind of walk through those passages that we didn't get to last week, just to kind of stir our hearts up to this idea. And what I want us to pay attention to is the means by which we are conformed to Christ. Because there, there, is, there is Ephesians 2.10 work. And I tell you, that's hard for a Roman Catholic former to say. Because works were the means by which I saved myself. So the idea of works was something that had to be held at a distance for me. But I realize now, particularly as I deepen my studies, God saves us unto good works. So a very good evangelistic question to ask yourself when you're talking to someone and you're listening very carefully is which side of the cross are they on when they're talking about works? Because on one side of the cross, the unsaved side, if works are an essential part of their salvation, they are going straight to hell. 
on the other side of the cross saved, works are precisely the means by which we are conformed to Christ. And the line is that fine, isn't it? Listen carefully to every false religion out there and you'll find works on the trying to get saved side of the cross. And these passages are going to help us see that. Isaiah 26, 3, I love this. You keep him, the saved one, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, Lord, because the, he trusts in you. You are, Lord, the object of his trust, his faith, his worship, and all that he does to glorify you. Now, I want to walk into this encounter that we find with our Lord at the, really, point at which he departs from public ministry and goes into about six months of really quite quiet off the Jerusalem grid ministry. And he has these intense encounters with the leaders of the false religion of Israel, right? In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says this striking thing. So Jesus said to the Jews, now listen to this. Here comes the unregenerate believer. Or let's say at best a mixed audience of unregenerate believers and regenerate believers. And Jesus is going to show you the mark that you can see in one of those two groups. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Fascinating. If, big if, you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Boy. Right? And is not the testimony of the false church one that is the seed might get planted it springs up and it's just filled with zeal. And over years or decades or centuries, you end up with, out of seven churches in Revelation, two that aren't condemned or under serious warning. Why? Because we slip away from the efficacy of the Word of God. It's no longer effective. Oh, sure, it's, it's true. Sure, it's inerrant. But it really doesn't do what Peter says it will do. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's calling them out. And you will know the truth. So now he's building on it. You will stop wandering around in your own thinking and you will know the truth, and what? We know this. And the truth will set you free. Free from what? Is what we ought to be asking. And thankfully, in this amazing section of Scripture, we get the answer. And it's one that I am sure we will all treasure as we get nearer and nearer and nearer to that day that we depart this world in death. Because Jesus says in John 8, 51, truly, truly, meaning stop, listen, this is truth. Get your head up. Listen to me. That's what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see what? Death. And they thought about it so much like the woman at the well, right? Literal and not spiritual. 
the very people who had the scriptures that showed that though there was a spiritual death that occurred in the garden, what was ushered in in the forbearance of God was a death that comes to every human being without a doubt. Unless God decides that he's going to make an example of a few, right? Every one of us are going to die. And the person who does not know the Lord, that is a fearful, roaring train loaded with their sin. And there's your point to begin your evangelizing and discipling so that they will know and understand these truths. I want to reference, (laughs) Tina and I have enjoyed with Gloria the last two nights, the documentary of Jim Elliott. (laughs) No, I shouldn't do that. And the movie, End of the Spear. If you have not seen it, if you have not watched it with your children, prepare them for the graphic nature of how those men died. But watch that, please. It's free on Amazon Prime. It's free on a couple of, Tina and I have the copies. We'd be glad to lend you the DVDs. Please watch it. Because the more we talked about it this morning, the more amazing it is, particularly in the context of this study. End of the Spear, Jim Elliott. Can't miss it. Gloria's reading it for school homework. It's wonderful. (laughs) He said this, the father, one of the four men that died. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. The Wadani people were a village of people who were in the deep jungles of Ecuador and were literally unreached by anybody because they killed everybody that came near them with spears. And they were very filthy, and they called them Aka, savages. And these men were determined to reach them. And they knew the danger. And there's a couple of different places in the documentary. We're not exactly sure where it was said. What struck me was the little boy, Stephen, about this tall, was so worried about his daddy. And he saw the gun in the plane. And he said, Daddy, are you going to protect yourself? And he said, Son, I'm ready to go to heaven. They are not. Man. Beautiful testimony of the Lord. Everything that happened there and continues to happen. Please watch it if you haven't. And if you have, watch it again. And Jesus says later in that upper room discourse, in the intimacy with the entire setting of that night, he says in John 14 and 15, if you love me. So now he's going from this big audience of people with the Pharisees and everybody watching right down to the final group of men that he'd been discipling all along. And he's saying the same thing, isn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he goes on further in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is, or that one, is the one who loves me. You want to know who the true disciple of Christ is? He loves me. He trusts me. And he knows my word. And the truth has set him free from the fear of death, no matter what the circumstances we put him in. And they will walk in that way. The put on is being taught right in that upper room. On the night that the Lord is going to face certainly death, 
but more importantly, the wrath that we deserve. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will, I love these words when I read them with eyes that were opened up, I will manifest myself to him through the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word of God that is in you. We know Jesus in a way no unbeliever possibly can. And let me say, when we talk about the whole life and godliness that we've been given that sits here that we don't always appropriate is certainly not because they haven't given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Because Paul stunningly says in the book of Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ if we're in God's word as a church. We're going to shift to the book of Colossians. Colossians 1, 3 through 5. So again, this is going to just be a letting of Scripture fall on us this morning. 1, 3 through 5. We're going to talk a little bit about the church of Colossians. But Paul starts this in verse 3. We always thank God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See how he always creates that relationship for us of the triune God? Just for the modalist. He says there's not a triune God. There's, there's God, this time he's being Father, this time he's being Son, this time he's being Spirit. How could you see that in these passages? Unless, of course, you write a Bible that eliminates them. We always thank God the Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, I want you to pay attention to the fervency of Paul's prayer because we're going to see why. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and here's part of what I want us to see. Boy, time flies in these studies, doesn't it? And the love that you have for all the saints. Don't you want to be like that? Aren't you glad that we can be like that? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And here you see the marks of the church. Love for Christ. Insatiable love for Christ. Insatiable love for his word and an insatiable love for the body of Christ, whom he has died for. He goes on to say, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Interesting that he says in the word of truth, the gospel. So is that like one tiny little Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and he's going to save you into it and everything's going to be forever wonderful. Is that the way it's worked out for you guys? <laughs> Hasn't been, right? No. That regeneration starts the work of the church to disciple into the word of God, the put off and the put on so that we may glorify our namesake and every facet of the love we have for each other and the way that love now pours into a society that desperately needs to know the truth. And that's what Paul is really praying for and appealing to here. The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing this fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood 
the grace of God and truth. And there's, I think, a wonderful message for all of us. Our evangelism is not a passing little thing we do. Our true evangelism is finding ways to allow unbelievers to spend time understanding what God's Word says. We have, in so many ways, boiled it down to some little tchotchke that most people are absolutely disgusted when we even bring the topic up. And these are the divine truths that free you from a death that never dies. Isn't that a fearful thought? Dr. MacArthur talked a little bit about this church in Colossae. And it helps us to see the contrast behind this ecumenical one true church movement that we see really taking life in society today. Set aside what? Truth. Because of what? Truth divides. Set it aside. We're all about the bumper sticker, aren't we? That's where the church is headed, folks, the visible church. The true church, the one true church, has Christ for its head. And it rests on Christ's finished work. Epaphras was the guy that founded this church that the Lord used. We learned that the Colossians had heard the gospel from him. These are all out of, right out of Dr. MacArthur's commentary, Introduction of Colossae. Epaphras was a native of Colossae. He was probably converted to Christ while visiting Ephesus during Paul's stay there. What a timely, providential day that would have been, right? But here's the thing about this letter as you read it. Despite the diligent labors of Epaphras, the Colossian church was in jeopardy. It was in trouble. A serious heresy had arisen, and Epaphras was so concerned. Listen to this. He made the 1,000 to 1,300-mile trip to Rome to talk to Paul about it. Can you imagine? Strapping up your little bag and heading out on a 1,300-mile trip so you could talk to Paul because you are so concerned about the body of Christ? Wow. And it's because there was an infection that had come into the Colossian church where the pagan culture and all of the Greek philosophy was married up with all of the Jewish legalism and it made for a powerful concoction, a very attractive concoction of philosophical elites who have a secret Gnostic wisdom that they use to shepherd all the other people who don't by legalism. Sound familiar at all? It's not necessarily in a building with a cross on the top of the building that you find these religions powerfully at work, which is why we're warned about it, right? So Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, and so from the day we heard it, so here you see the intensity when Epaphras came to me, right? We have not ceased to pray for you. Gives a whole new set of meanings to that, doesn't it? See how much he loved and cared about the body of Christ. But you see how intense the war is? I think we've totally lost sight that there is a real spiritual war going on here. And it wants to devour the true church 
wants to neuter her so that she doesn't even look like a church anymore. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Asking, and look at the, look at the antidote for this heresy. This is what I want you to see. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of, pay attention to it, His will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and here comes the effect of the antidote. If we are filling ourselves constantly with the knowledge of His will, we're putting off and we're putting on, what's going to happen? We will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the hotter the fire, the more faithful the walk. Fully pleasing to Him. What a joyful set of words that is. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So not only are you diligently seeking the Word of God, the Spirit of God is increasing your knowledge of the Word of God. And that ought to be a means by which we can examine each of ourselves. I have sat and discipled people who have claimed to be Christians for 20 years who say, I don't have a clue what any of this means. I just know I have a date and I have a prayer and I have a confirmation of a whole bunch of people that said, you are good to go. And that is a wonderful opportunity to disciple. Using these passages, right? Increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, powerful statement, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving the opposite of Romans 121, thanks to God. Remember Romans 121? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks, and their foolish hearts were the opposite. We are increasing in knowledge through the blessed work of the Spirit of God. They are losing what they may have had. Their foolish hearts were darkened and it's just this simple don't play around with god wouldn't you be glad when the fear of the lord has restored true wisdom to society being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And here comes that passage. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, snatched us right off of that slide into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Now, I want to kind of jerk us away from that church in jeopardy, and I want to drive us to Matthew 7, verse 13. And I think you'll see the pattern here. The church... The narrow gate, the false church, the rest of the world, the wide road. Because Jesus taught more about hell than anybody in the Bible. We know that. We've heard it, right? And here's one of those times when he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. Matthew 7, 13. Many. We live in a community where everybody calls everybody brother or sister. Everybody. Completely counter to what this passage talks about. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And isn't it interesting that verse 15 comes right in with, Beware of false prophets. 
How do you think so many people are walking that wide road to destruction perfectly comfortable with their religion? Because they have heaped up for themselves what their ears want to hear. And they will run out of no end to the false teachers who will climb into that pulpit and fill them full of lies to make them perfectly comfortable on the way to hell. And Jesus is speaking about it right here. And if that is not where the church needs to be inserted, I don't know where. Right? Who come to you, there is a billion Roman Catholics right now. There is 1.3 billion Muslims. And the religions, if you look at them, are exactly the same religion. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Just look at them. Look at the people they disciple. That's their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Faithful pastors, faithful elders, faithful teaching ministries, faithful church discipline to keep us on that road, right? That's part of the fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit, because God's bearing the good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But here it comes again, verse 20 from, 21 from our Lord himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? The will of of my Father. And what is the will of the Father? What did he say at the transfiguration? Listen to my Son. If the object of everything that you care about does not begin with your love for Christ and your trust in Him, right? You can recognize yourself where the rest of us are in that put off and put on. Just want to get through 2 Peter 1.3. And I want to quickly encourage you with how God equips you to be this church that I know Ryan and the folks are going to sing for us sooner or later. Just saying, Ryan. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. Look how we are equipped and look at how it progresses into pairs of progression. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Isn't that wonderful? How do we get the mind of Christ? We get, through the Scriptures and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the privilege of working through those Scriptures to understand and yet we realize at the end of it, we didn't do it. God did it. <laughs> the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted, you see the indicatives here? His precious and very great promises. Tina and I have a friend whose mother, who lives in a little home with a lot of other little very elderly people, and has a wonderful little track she's written in by hand and copied of the 101 promises she found in the Bible based on this passage. And she goes around that little place and evangelizes everybody she could until her son removed her two years ago from that home. Beautiful picture. Because these promises are powerful promises especially when you're swirling in the consequence of your sin. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine 
nature. You ever think about that, Jeffrey? <laughs> All the time. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort, here we come, right, to supplement your faith, which is God-given, with virtue, goodness, goodness, in the face of the flesh that wants to do something very different, right? Virtue with knowledge, there comes knowledge again, look at these pairs, and knowledge with self-control, because an understanding of Christ and what He endured will help you endure when you just want to let loose, right? Self-control with steadfastness, which builds, right? The more you contain and control, the more comfortable you get with the ability to contain and control. And that's when people will start to look at you and go, what is it about you, Grady? It drives me crazy. What is it? It's steadfastness. And people need that. But look where it goes. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, there's the church, and brotherly affection with love that just pours out of that body of Christ in your own life. Love, love, love is the climax of being conformed to Christ. And if these are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you hate to be in that side of the class? The one who's given all this knowledge but was utterly fruitless with it. Now I want to just jump and this is where we'll close. I want you to pay attention to this passage because I think it's one of the most overlooked passages in the New Testament. It's in Luke 16, which is a parable of the dishonest manager, which I think immediately sets us all off on a bit of a defensive examination of ourselves. Because we all find ways of being dishonest in hidden ways, right? And this parable gets right to it. But I want you to pay attention to something that the Lord teaches in this parable, very relative to the church and where we're headed and why it's so important. I'm going to pick up at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That throws a lot of commentators off. He commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He's saying, look how shrewd that man is. Now look what he says next. Talk about an indictment on the church that hasn't even been born yet. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You see what he's saying? It should be the exact opposite. We should have a fire lit underneath of us. that's akin to the effort people make in the world to have everything sorted away for retirement and have every bucket list completed and have every tick and tie done. They are fervent about it. And he's saying, look how much more shrewd they are for their kingdom than you are for mine. And I wouldn't say that if it weren't the Lord saying it right here. Look how much more shrewd they are. But here comes the shade. Here's the commandment. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Take the resources that God has given you and make friends with it so that you might disciple them into the truth that God has entrusted you with. So that when it, the righteous mammon, or the unrighteous mammon, fails, they, who are they? I don't think it's the money. Who were they? The friends. The prisoners. 
the neighbor. Make friends so that when all that they rely on fails, they may receive you into what? The eternal dwelling. I know when we enter our day with the Lord, we're going to see the Lord and we are going to just fall on our face. But this passage kind of suggests there's some background there, isn't there? They may receive you into the eternal dwelling, a welcoming party of the person that Grady witnessed to, that the Lord saved, that went to the jungle of Ecuador and gave his life and converted an entire people group out of horrific violence. You ever think about that? The Lord gave it to us so that we would hear this verse 10 very carefully. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. I love the grand ideas I desire to do for the Lord, but the real tests are all the tiny little things he gives me every day to be faithful with. This precious little 12-year-old daughter that was yanked out of who knows where she was going. And everything else that God entrusts you daily, one who is faithful with the little things, he will be entrusted with much. And one who is dishonest with a very little is also dishonest with much. Watch, right? Watch. Okay? So we'll come back next week, and we're going to kind of work our way back to Romans 1 at the end. I promise. The week after next, probably. Thank you, guys.